I'd invite you to pull out the uh, note section of your bulletin, which should be in there. And uh, you can open up your Bibles. Oh, let's start in John 6 this morning. Um, this morning, or this week, I had a an interesting phone call. Uh, my family and I are a part of a of a study with Stanford University on um, on bipolar disorder, and um, we're there as a or we were being tested to see if we could be a control group for some different things. Yeah, I I say tested because I went in quasi confident. Um, <laughs> But uh, so I sat in my office and I had a series of questions asked of me that started off fairly, you know, fairly benign. And I was answering them and whatnot. And then it got into sorts of things of this nature. And I, I want to start by saying I don't want to make light of this. This is a real disorder and disease. But it's strange to be asked these questions. And I found as I started answering them, I just found it really bizarre because I haven't had a conversation like this in a long time. But this seemed like a fairly intelligent person on the other end of the voice or the end of the phone asking me these kinds of questions. Um, you know, do you hear voices? Um, do you hear, uh, you know, do you, do you feel you have special powers? Um, do you feel like people are constantly watching you from across a room? Um, do you tend to see people, things, uh, events that no one else sees and you have a hard time convincing other people that they exist? And so the, the questions kind of ramped up more and more kind of, you know, kind of bizarre as they, as they went along. And I kept going, no, no. No, I don't think so. No, no. Uh, who told? You know, I mean, it was weird, like just to have these questions kind of going along and 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 walking away from that. You know, I, I thought about this. Um, so yesterday we got we got these pictures back. Riley went up and had um, a um, kind of an MRI done, and we got to see her brain. We got pictures of her brain, which is you know, it's always good confirmation to know there's there's one in there and functioning. Uh, but we were kind of Looking at that, thinking that was thinking that was pretty amazing, um, but to think that you know it's a disease, it would be a debilitating disease to have voices, um, you know, constantly talking to you and struggling with reality. And I got to thinking about our own lives, and I thought, you know, it's really not that different for all of us. Uh, now, now whether or not we hear voices or see people that don't exist or not is a, is a different matter. But the reality is that we're we're hearing from voices, aren't we, all the time? influences, ideas. Sometimes it comes in the way of family tradition or family history. What's been told to you your whole life? I know that some people sitting in this room have probably spent and, and worked a lifetime of getting away from some of the voices that they had been kind of pounded into them from, their, from the time that they were little. Uh, many of you, I, I've, I've talked to, to several of you in this room who are embarking on some new directions in life, a job change, a whole career move. And, and in that, you're looking for voices, aren't you? You're, you're looking to say, what should I do? And so we ask other people, we get input, and, and as a Christian, you know, we'd read the Bible and pray and, um, you know, and, and these different things. But the reality is there's, there's kind of voices coming at us all the time. I think about the things that, that kids hear. I absolutely love spending time around children because children tend to see and hear things that most of us adults goes right over our head. We just don't even catch it. But if you're really listening to children and you just talk to them about what they see and what they're thinking about and all that, it's just fascinating to, to kind of be around that and think about that. Teens, I spend a lot of time with, with teenagers, and one of the interesting things about kind of these rapids that you head into as you launch into the teenage years is that there are constantly voices coming at you. And all of a sudden, voices from your peers are in conflict with voices from your parents. 
So how do you manage that? How do you deal with that? How do you know what to listen to? Someone said it this way in a book that I read this week. It said, life is a search for a voice we can trust. Now take matters not like a job where you can run specific numbers, compensation packages, commute time, uh, job satisfaction, all those kinds of things that are fairly tangible. Now start lifting the lid on that and thinking about things that, that are really huge questions. Let me throw a couple out to you. What must I do to inherit eternal life? If eternal life exists, we kind of ask with the rich young ruler, don't we, at one point in our life, what must I do to, to, to get this? How do I get in on living forever and living the good life? Here's another question. What does God want from me? Ever asked that question? It can be asked like this. What do you want from me? Or it can be asked like this. God, what do you want from me? I've asked both. But, but at some point we ask that question, don't we? Those are, those are really big questions. How about this? How am I to live my life? Another one. Is there any sense to my pain? Now, enter Jesus into the picture of all this and into all these questions we have and a and hundred more that we could come up with if we just sat and dialogued a little bit. And here's what I would surmise. I would surmise this, that both in and out of the church, people like Jesus, but only parts of Jesus. I know that in my own growth, I have had an, an understanding of who Jesus is and was, and that that has been shaped and molded and changed as I've grown. Those of you who are married understand what I'm talking about. You started dating this person, and then you decided to plan a wedding with this person. Then you got married, and you went on a honeymoon with this person. And then year one came, and then year two, and maybe you're in year three right now, and you're looking back going, wow, we have both changed. This is a different person than that first date when I came home and all I could see was everything absolutely perfect about this person. And guess what? There's more to the person. And, and ideally, the way marriage works is you, is you look back 20 years from now and hopefully you know more of the person than you did when you started dating, right? And, and faults and all, that, that you grow with that person. And, and so it is with God. There are parts of God... And the way he's been revealed in Jesus that I didn't understand when I was a kid. I had a certain perception. And if someone would have come to me and said, do you know that your Jesus said this? I would have defended him and said, absolutely not. He did not. Thank you very much. My Jesus would never say something like that. Only to find out that my Bible, which is a red letter edition, has red words that say that he did say that. And so that's been part of my own growth path. I got to play golf over the holiday, and I played with this guy. Um, and I always realized this about me, that when I walk a course for four and a half hours with someone, I'm going to get to share the Lord with that person, no question about it. So my prayer going in is this. One is, Lord, make me bold and make me, make me, um, make me sensitive but, but bold to share the truth with the person. I probably have four hours with this person my whole life. And secondly, please, please, please don't ruin my golf game when I start talking about spiritual things. <laughs> and frankly, honestly, only one of those ever gets answered, and that's the boldness one. I don't know what it is, but, um, but my game goes downhill when I start talking passionately about the Lord and sharing Jesus with people. But I got talking with this guy about, about the ninth hole after his buddy left, and um, we had an, an amazing conversation. And uh, and this guy knew a lot about the Bible. He knew a lot about Jesus. He was probably, in the last five years, one of the most receptive people I've ever had 
in talking about things, to not just want to antagonistically come back and keep pressuring all these different things and, well, how do you know this, 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 and this? And so it moved beyond that. We got to talk about life. And, um, and I asked him about some of his things. And, um, and, uh, and, there were, and there were parts of Jesus that he quoted and clung to. I could tell it was like a little treasure. And he'd offer them up, you know, as we'd be talking. He'd, he'd offer up this truth statement that is exactly what Jesus would say. And, um, and I've got this whole series kind of rolling around in my mind. And, and I said, well, you know, I could kind of agree with that, which is true. But there's also this other side to it. And so periodically in the conversation, I'd say, well, but he also said this. And, and you know, and those are, those are difficult kind of to bring together, don't you think? And, and we just had a great conversation for about nine holes of golf. But here's at the end of the day is um, I really believe this person wanted to cling to kind of to kind of a part of the Bible, and I think it was it was Edison who who physically cut out parts of the Bible that he didn't like, so his Bible probably had a lot of holes in it. Um, we don't tend to highlight those passages or memorize those passages. They certainly don't end up on the crocheted things at Berean that you hang on your wall, but they're in there. And so and so as we kind of launch forward, we're looking for um, this this voice. Jesus, I would say, is a little bit like a great coach. Uh, it's football season, playoff time, and all of that. And um, I'm always fascinated to kind of watch the coaches and see how they manage, you know, uh, super rich kids um, that are playing a game, you know, for a living. And um, and just the, the way, you know, there's sometimes there's a player coach and sometimes there's guys who are kind of lofty and removed. I look at Jesus. I think Jesus is an amazing mix of kind of a tough and tender coach. There's times Jesus comes along verbally and he just gives hugs to people. And there's times he's coming along, he's kicking them in the tail. And he's saying kind of these really, really hard things. And as you read through the scriptures, here's what it looks like a little bit. There's kind of this severity and there's this harshness that you can't get around. And it's there, it's in red. And you go, man, I wish Jesus wouldn't have said that. Because if my non-Christian friends got a hold of this, I wouldn't know how to defend it. I don't even know what he's talking about with this one. And there's other words of Jesus that we run to time and again, and we go, man, I just need to read this. I just need to let this wash over me. I need to let this heal me. I need to let this be true in my life. Thank you, Jesus, for these words you've given to me. And they're a little bit maybe like honey. They're just sweet to the taste. What we're looking at is both of these this morning. Uh, if you think about it, the, uh, both, both Jesus' adversaries and his disciples tasted of his harshness. Let me read for you just a little bit of a highlight of some of the things that he, he was speaking uh, to some scribes and Pharisees. He said this, he called them children of hell. He called them blind fools. He called them blind guides, hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, and brood of vipers, publicly. You don't think those are fighting words to a person who's a, a, a person of position and status and power and has risen to the ranks because of all the work that's gone on? Those are fighting words. By the way, that's in one chapter, Matthew 23. There's a lot more. But bottom line is the adversaries of Jesus, his enemies, they tasted of this harshness. He wasn't afraid to kind of go, go around them. He went, he went right to them with truth. And when people come and they would test him with things, he would always kind of throw this zinger that would, that would reveal what was really going on. But it wasn't just his adversaries, and this is what kind of trips me up, is it was his disciples. He said one time, teaching in Matthew 7, teaching to his disciples, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, and then he went on to teach. Uh, thank you, friend. You know, just thank you for calling me evil today. I appreciate it. To Peter one time, we all know this one, I think, but he says, get behind me, Satan. Those are really harsh words. You don't think he had a, 
a hurt feeling after that, I think he went away and licked his wounds. And I, I mean, that's, that's a really harsh thing to say some, to someone. Get behind me, Satan. Look at John 6, and uh, we'll, kind of see, we'll kind of see this played out in, in one passage. Look down at verse 60, and the context here is this. My heading in the NIV says that many disciples desert Jesus. And the context is this. He's just been teaching them uh, a hard teaching about partaking of his flesh, drinking his blood. And, it, and we were not going to get into all of the cultural context of that, but it was, uh, it was disgusting. It was very irreligious. It was shocking. It was controversial. And it made people react. That's what was going on. And picking up from verse 60, it says this. On hearing it, many of his, of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. Verse 65 picks up and says this. He went on to say, that This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Now, there is a ton here that we're going to actually unpack in the weeks to come. But verse 66 is this. From, that, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And then he turns kind of to, to his more intimate 12 here. People are leaving. He's drawn the multitudes. He's been teaching them these different things. Many start to turn away. The thing starts to look like it falls apart a little bit. And Jesus turns and levels his eyes at them and asks this question. You are not going to leave too, are you? Or you you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Always the first to speak up. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Here's in essence what Peter says, and he speaks for the group, which is pretty normal for Peter. In essence, he says, we, we would if we could. But what we've discovered is you alone have the words of life, and if it takes us through hard times, we must follow. We can't turn back. We've already left profession and family and good name in the synagogue and whatever else might be there to follow you. And there's a reason for that. And we're not turning back now. And I think that moment was a pretty interesting kind of, kind of crisis of faith for these guys. But here's what they had found. I think they had found one voice. And it was pure. And it was accurate. And it was this like beacon of light that, that, light that just drowned out all these other voices that they had been hearing their whole life. Do this. Go that way. Be that person. Impress her. Along comes Jesus with words of life, and they, and they just all start to kind of wash away. Some of you in this room know exactly what the disciples went through with that. And you say, man, no, ma- no matter where this takes me, I cannot turn back because that's the voice that I'm following. That's what it's about. Interesting that if you look at the life of, of Peter, uh, the first words Jesus spoke to Peter were really, really simple words. Follow me. 
He just said, follow me. And that was the, that was the call. This series that we're going to go into is called Demanding. And what I want to talk about for the next season of time for neighborhood is this idea of the life that we're called to. I believe in Jesus. I've made a profession of faith. I want the free gift of life. I turn from my sin. I acknowledge that He's the King of Kings. Now what? It's going to answer some of these questions. We're going to dive into and explore some of these questions about now how am I supposed to live? What does God want from me? I have this title for a couple of different reasons. One is that the life that you and I are called to as a Jesus follower is arduous and difficult. And I don't know if someone who led you to the Lord told you that, but they should have. They should have said, man, I want you to fill out a card, but filling out a card is super easy. As long as you can spell and you have a good pencil in your hand. But living this life is far harder than a card, isn't it? It's way harder than getting up and walking an aisle. I walked an aisle in 1987 to go get baptized, and that was scary, and that was hard. But looking back on that, that's cake. That's nothing. That was a first important step, but that's not what it's about. You don't need to turn there, but you can write down Acts 14. In Acts 14, verse 21, it says this, They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. There's our calling right there. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Why do they need to strengthen them? Why do they need to come and encourage them? Because the life of a disciple is demanding. If it's easy, if I asked Timmy right here, Timmy, he just woke up, just kidding. Timmy, I want you to stand, don't, don't really do this, but if I said, Timmy, I want you to go back and close that door and then come back and sit down. Would you do that? I mean, if I asked you to do that, would you do it? Okay. What a great kid. Great parents. Give it up. Um, here's what you wouldn't find me doing. You wouldn't find me popping up behind the second row going, you can do it, Timmy. Come on, buddy. You got this. And then I'll crawl under a few more rows and right near the back. Come on, buddy. Finish the task. You can do it. Here's why. Closing the door is very simple for Timmy, right? Now, if Timmy was two, and I said, Timmy, I want you to go back and touch the door and come back. I might do that. I might be a parent or a fun friend that's kind of encouraging them along, right? The reason that the churches need to be strengthened, the reason they need to be encouraged is because it's an arduous life. It's demanding being a Christian. And if you don't get that, you're missing something. It says this, it goes on to say this, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of, of God. That's Acts 14, verse 22. Not a, not a life verse for many people that I've met. You know, what's your life verse? What's your favorite verse in the whole Bible when they say, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God? I love that one. I just think about it. I write it on my paper all the time. We don't like that, right? It's just not a life verse. Here's the second thing is that God makes demands. God makes demands. He insists. He requires. He commands things of us. Versus suggesting, asking, or begging of us. It's important to understand that there are things as you read through the Scripture, as you read the Scriptures, in fact, I would challenge you, be looking for the direct commands of God. If you're looking for wisdom and input on where should I go in life, what should I do, should I take this job or not, look at the commands of God. 
Look at the things that you must be doing. There's all kinds of peripheral kinds of things that you can dive into and talk about and the Bible speaks to. But there are plenty of things that are black and white, hard and fast, that are right there that every believer is to be paying attention to. Finally is this, that our sufferings, our trials, our difficulties, and our pain are being used by God to perfect us. Think about this. Every hardship that you come across, and we're going to dive into all kinds of scripture verses that are just going to make this leap off the page to you. But every hardship that you come across this next coming week, the enemy has for you a plan that says, I want you to question your faith. I want to beat you down with this. I want to offer you shame. I want to remind you that you do this time and time again. I want to tell you specifically in this instance, you have no power over this. This will always be your little secret sin in the closet and you can't win. There's a real enemy and that leads to death. That's what he wants for you. That's his plan for you in difficulties, in trials, in sickness, and in frustration. Do you not know that there's a a loving Heavenly Father, a good shepherd, that will lead you into pain and difficulty? Jesus goes out and he calls Peter out onto the water. Another time, he sets out in a boat with his disciples, knowing full well, There's going to be a massive storm such that these seasoned fishermen are going to fear for their life. 6.5 earthquake, nothing. These guys are white with fear. Guess who who invited them out into that ocean knowing it would be like that? Jesus did. He will take you through the storm. But here's his plan in it. He wants to perfect you. He wants to knock out from under you the things that you're leaning on that are temporary and terrible Terrible foundation. Some people right now are still in the midst of learning not to trust in finances. Not to trust in their storehouses. Not even to trust in their job or their satisfaction for a job. And God's using that to purify the church. He's using that to purify families. When all of a sudden a massive sickness bomb explodes in your family... And praise God yesterday, my daughter was going through an MRI for nothing more than something we voluntarily signed up with. But don't think it didn't cross my mind that what if I was, what if I was needing to be at Stanford with my daughter and watch her go through this because of some terrible thing going on? God, please, let my hope be in you, no matter if it's for a study or if that's for her life at stake. When one of those bombs goes off, we, we're, we're kind of confronted with two things. One leads to death and one leads to life. Those who set their minds on things of the flesh, it leads to death. Those who look at life only from kind of under the sun, it leads to, it leads to death. Those who put their minds on the Spirit leads to life. And that's what God wants to show us in difficulties, in sufferings. Romans 5.3 is a verse we'll, we'll hear from more than once, but it says this, Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Sounds wacky and crazy until you get to know this Jesus. He goes on to give the reason. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us 
Because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. As we, as we go through this series and as we look at some of the demanding parts of life, some of it will hit really close to home with some of you. It'll be kind of like right where the rubber meets the road and, and very life-type stuff. And what I don't want to do is lead us in some weird directions theologically. So what I thought is at the very start of this, before we start moving into some other areas of discussion, I want to provide a little bit of a context or a prerequisite. If you're entering college, there are certain classes you need to have a prerequisite before you can take it. They want you to have this building block of understanding before you start to build on it, or else none of it really makes sense. And you hear the same words as your neighbor, but you, 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 you extrapolate some different meaning from it. Here's kind of some prerequisites to this whole study. The first one is this. First one is that salvation is a free gift. What I want to say over and over in this, or what I, what I want understood in this, is as God calls us to obey in some area, as He commands us to do something with our life or in an area of our inner life, that we are not working toward salvation. That our new life isn't at stake and, and our little heartbeat machine is gonna, is gonna flatline if we don't take this on. That's where the Pharisees and scribes got it wrong. And that's why Jesus is doing the name calling thing. Because that whole path leads to death. There's no life in the, in, in the law. Again, read Romans about 1 to 8. You'll get that picture drilled into you. Ephesians 2 8, great verse to memorize. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. If we go on to this demanding series and we talk about all these things and you start to, you start to get a hold of it and God starts to move in your life and you start to do some things, here's a potentially bad result that could, that could happen. I'm going to give you three prerequisites and three bad results that could happen if you're not careful and you don't keep the whole of Scripture in front of you. Here's one bad result. Boasting. In this same category, the trap of working for your salvation. I don't know how many kids in the room spent time leading up to Christmas just working their tails off so they could get some gifts at Christmas time. I mean, just busting it. They're clocking in and clocking out, and they're working for it so they can get a gift. Now, that's ludicrous because it runs counter to what a gift is. Right? A gift is given, not earned. Otherwise, it becomes compensation. It becomes something totally different. The nature of it completely changes. And so it is with us. Sometimes, as children of God, we get in this mentality, I've got to work for Christmas. Got to work for the good thing. And that's not what the Bible teaches at all. Another bad result kind of in that same category is just losing sight of grace. I told you years ago, one time God impressed upon my heart, read through the whole Bible in one year, thinking about the word grace. Some of you are reading through the Bible for the first time this year. I, I would challenge you, it served me well, that over the years, God's given me a different kind of lens to look through the Scriptures. Pray and ask Him about it. Ask people that are further than you in the journey. Hey, what are some big themes of God 
that I had to look for. You know what I knew was in there? The word grace. That's not a New Testament idea. And so woven through the whole of God's story is this idea of grace. And it will rock your world. It will change your life to do that. Don't lose sight of it. Here's a second prerequisite is this. The same grace that enables salvation brings about holiness or obedience in your life. So it's a grace to be called by God and be able to even have ears and eyes of faith to believe in Jesus. It's not that you one day woke up super spiritual and you were on your best mark that day and so you, and so you found you know, kind of the right frequency or something. Even that was a gift. And that same grace that enables salvation, that we would say, yeah, no kidding, I can't save myself. I've got that. I need that grace. I want you to remember this. I want you to remember that that same exact grace is what's going to carry you on to the end. That's what's going to enable these impossible commands that are offered to you to make sense and to start to take root in your life. Titus chapter 2 is a great place to look for this. Titus 2 verse 11 says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Here's the bad result. The bad result is that we would start out in the Spirit, start out as helpless children, and somehow think we're going to end this life, end this life, walk of faith in the flesh by our own power. Doesn't the Bible say that from start to finish, your life of faith is, is God's working? It's Him at work. You know what that does for me? I hope it does for this church. Is just do this. Man, that's a load off. We can just take kind of this collective sigh and say, good. Because this doesn't sound like a real exciting series to be inviting my friends to. Let's all look at how many hardships we're going to take to enter the kingdom of God. Third prerequisite I want to share with you is this, that there is infinite reward that awaits those who persevere and there's punishment and penalty that greet those who don't live this demanding life that Jesus calls us to. In other words, keeping before you the end. Keeping before you that there is a real heaven and a real hell. And that really is a destination for us all. Friday past and Friday future, we're having back-to-back memorials in this building. And it's during a memorial. Although I don't typically look forward to that, memorials are an absolute gift to come and be a part of. Because if the person's a Christian... And it was so amazing to work with a couple of pastors that knew Aunt Sue from the Sloan's family. And to hear their testimony about her and the conversations they had with her at her bedside. I never even knew Sue. You know what I knew of Sue? A Facebook picture and a body that was right here. That's it. And so when I see that and I read a scripture that says the flesh counts for nothing, it just dawns on me in a, in a new way. It really is true. This is a tent that I borrow for a while. I need to take care of it. God's only given me one tent. But that, but that when I look into your eyes and when you look into mine and when you hug each other and engage with each other, there's more than just this stuff, right? 
And so that leads to kind of this bigger drama that is the human drama and, and says, what's it all about? Uh, Titus 2, I'm going to just continue where I just started reading about the grace that brings about salvation and also teaches us to live a godly life. goes on in verse 13 to say this, While we waited for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. A prerequisite, as you think about how hard it is that that what we learned in church, I sure don't like that command, I sure wish it was easier, I sure wish I didn't have to give that up, I sure wish I didn't have to pick up that, that we look at the end and we say, there's a hope coming. And whatever seems hard right now is going to pale in comparison to what's received later on. I had one of those absolutely amazing moments as a dad yesterday, sitting on a chair. We were doing some devotions separately, just kind of sitting there. And my five-year-old Tegan crawled up on my lap, and we were sitting there on a chair reading. And I happened to be in Romans 8, so I read her Romans 8. And I told her, I said, this is one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. And as I start to read Romans 8 to a five-year-old, it dawns on me about ten verses in, I'm a little slow, that this is a little heady for a five-year-old. I mean, Tegan's sitting there, and she's a kind of a mover anyway. Like, she can't sit still for three seconds. So, you know, I'm sitting there like this, and I'm kind of reading like this. And I said, this is... But she was so hungry to just sit and listen to God's Word in this moment. She said, I said, this is a little bit hard to understand, huh, Tegan? She goes, yeah. I said, well, I'm going to keep going. Is that okay? Yeah, sounds good. So we just kept on reading. We get to the end of Romans 8, and, um, and we're just sitting there. Sometimes I ask my kids, hey, what do you think about that? We'll talk about it a little bit, whatever, informal. But this time we're just sitting there, and she looked at me, and she goes, you know what, Daddy? Her face was about this close to mine. She says, you know what, Daddy? I said, what, Tegan? She said, I think about heaven pretty much every single day. You know what? Romans 8 really isn't about heaven. We didn't have a dialogue about heaven. She just, that was a little window into her soul. And I said, Tegan, I said, tell me about it. Like, what do you think about? And she goes, well, I don't know. And then she just started letting it roll and sharing different things. And I tell you what, sitting there with my five-year-old on my lap, hearing about heaven, I just thought, man, us adults lose sight of that. You know, I told her, I said, I said, don't stop thinking about heaven, Tegan, ever. Don't stop. Here's what happens to adults. We lose sight of really important matters. And you know what that leads to? Just huge problems. It leads to really, really big problems. We could take that on a lot of different levels. But I want to take it spiritually for a moment and just say that there is an eternity awaiting for us. And our life is but a blip. We talked a few weeks ago about God, teach us to number our days. I want to challenge you. I, I appreciated Nicole Sloan's testimony a couple weeks ago. She just shared in short, one of the parts that jumped out to me was this. In the past, I've really feared death and I haven't been there for some of you in your in walking through the death of a loved one. Having just done that this Christmas season, I'm going to be there for you. I'm not going to fear that anymore. I would challenge you in 2010, go to more memorials and funerals. Make time for that. Go and be supportive. I'll tell you what it will do. God will, God will teach you to number your days. 
It's one thing walking away from a wedding. I love weddings. In fact, being at a mortuary my entire year, I'd freak out. I love going to visit you in the hospital when you have a brand new baby. I love being at weddings. But God does something different to me. I hug my kids different when I come home from a funeral. He just does. It's a powerful thing to be a part of. Don't turn there. But again, just just write down Genesis 25. Genesis 25, there's this guy named Esau. Esau is the brother of a guy named Jacob. And um, Esau lost sight of some really important things. And he's an illustration for us not to follow. Genesis 25, this guy is famished. You ever been just so hungry that you just eat anything? You're just hungry. That's what this guy is. He's been out in the field. He comes in and he values the wrong thing. Genesis 25:33 says this, And so he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. He's having a conversation with his bro. Now his brother's a little bit conniving. My son beat me at checkers yesterday. He's 11. I should be winning at checkers. I don't know how it happened, but it did. I thought about it. I said, Ethan, you're, you're good at just strategizing and seeing things. I tried to bait him into little things, but it didn't work. Jacob was that way. Jacob would have killed me at checkers. I know it. Jacob's a bit of a conniver. He kind of he kind of just weasels his way in to Esau's spot. And along comes Esau. Verse 34 says, Then Jacob gave Esau, catch this, some bread and some lentil stew. I don't care how good the bread or lentil stew was, that turned in his stomach when he kind of came to his senses, realized what he did. I don't know if he had low blood sugar or what was going on with the guy. But he made a bad trade. It says he ate and drank, and then he got up and left. And then he says this. This is the part I want you to catch. So Esau despised his birthright. You know what we'd call that? A fool. Or we would just call a fool. Someone who would trade a little trinkety meal for a birthright. And that's what I mean when I say, please keep heaven and hell in front of you. Keep your God-given birthright that is offered to you as a free gift for those who trust in Christ and those who are found in Christ. Keep that in front of you. Don't sell that for some little pleasure vacation. Don't sell that for some little puny pursuit that you might have for a few years, months, or a meal like Esau did. Let's learn from this guy. Bad result of that one is giving up and settling for pleasure, seeking after small joy rather than huge joy, and despising the birthright that God offers. You ever seen this guy before? It's a guy that wears the question authority shirt, right? This guy's got the sweet hip necklace going and a little bit of facial hair going. Question authority. Now, oftentimes, when you get dialoguing with someone, I have this shirt that says, so what, on it. And what's really cool about that is I always tend to attract people that are like, right on, power to the people. I'm like, cool, you know. And all these people come up and they want to talk about, you know, all sorts of different subject matter. And they're like, cool, so so what? What's that all about? I'm like, well, our junior high pastor at my old church, you know, he would teach junior high kids. By this point, they're going, oh. You know, I say teach junior high kids, but then he'd say, let's not just fill our heads with knowledge. Let's apply it. So like, so what? So what? The Bible says that. How are we now going to live with that? And they're like, oh, right on. That's cool. See ya. And they don't talk to me anymore. But, um, but so what? You know, it's kind of like people, like people, the, the question authority guy might come over and high five me, right? Usually, sometimes, most often, when I see someone wearing a question authority, a shirt, usually it means this. 
It means I don't submit to anyone's authority. I have a problem with authority. I have issues with authority. I desire no authority. And you just go down that for 10 minutes and you realize, you know, no authority means anarchy and you really actually don't want that. And the other reality is you don't live by that. No one lives without authority. So I want to turn this around a little bit and say that you should question authority. You should question who rules in your life. As we move forward in this series demanding, I'm going to say some things that if they came from me, you would have every right to stand up, walk out the store, and go, that guy's a lunatic. I'll never do what that guy says. But, prayerfully, God will make up for my lack, and I'll be preaching God's word, and I'll be trying to show you, share with you, authoritatively give you the commands of Jesus. I want to show you what God's laid out in his word and what he demands from your life. So now that becomes an authority issue. Someone could say in this room, I don't even believe that God exists. Why would I do what he says? That's a great point. I would go pursue that question. Do you flip a coin back into eternity past and say there was either gas there or a person there? Go do the hard work of that. You've got to believe that God exists before he starts to interact with you and you, and you work with him. No question about it. Some of you have settled that issue. And while you might sing a song that says, Glory to our great God. You might say King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But you might live a lifestyle that questions that. And I would push back on you a little bit. I'd say, who's ruling your life? Who's really in control of your life? Whose authority do you submit to? The Bible gives all kinds of different pictures that are there. One shares this idea that you're a slave to whoever you obey. So if that's sins and passions, whether you ever articulate that or not, you're a slave to them. You're under their authority. Or if you start living a life of God and you say, I'm going to follow God's will, and you're going to willingly choose to place yourself under his authority, that's what it's about. Peter decided to follow. He heard the words, follow me, and he did. He got up and he placed himself under a teacher, a rabbi's authority, such that he now had a voice in his life. And that's, what, that's a part of what it means to be a Christian. Let me just bring up two authorities that I want to point you to. One is Jesus, one is the Bible. Very quickly, Jesus is this. Successfully relating to God begins by relating to God as a follower. In fact, think about this. God doesn't relate to you and I on any other level other than follower. Jesus went around and he gave really some fairly simple commands, the easiest being follow me, not the easiest and the hardest being follow me, because follow me meant leading to death and all kinds of different things, as we know. But Jesus, but Jesus gave these commands and he initiated the, the relationship and said, you are a follower. And I got to thinking about this. God doesn't relate to us on any, other, on any other level because it doesn't make any sense to relate to us on any other level. We're not his peer. We're not his superior. We're not just a neighboring Lord on some other county. Those stars and moons that we just sang about and saw images of, we can only begin to fathom what that really is all about. And we sang this line together. I heard you. I sat right here and heard you sing it. We're talking about Jesus, the one who rules them by his word. And who had a hand in creating all that we see. First and last thing he says to Peter is, follow me. Mark 1, 17, John 21. 
He gave no qualifications or conditions. He gave no particulars, right? He didn't give any kind of like contractual exceptions. He didn't have a money-back guarantee, none of that. He just simply said the words, follow me. It's kind of the beginning and end of what it means to be a Christian. I found it interesting that the last words he said to Peter were, follow me. You can read it for yourself in John 21. We just covered it not long ago. Those are the bookends of being a Christian, friends. That's it. Follow me. When you've lost your way and you're you know, reading nine different authors and you've gotten away from some different things, boil it back down to that. The sheep hear my voice and they follow me. God, I need to hear your voice again. I've let all kinds of other things in. That requires shutting out other voices, doesn't it? Follow me. It's what it means to be a Christian. Uh, so many people identify themselves as, as all kinds of things. I sometimes do this in, in, in not wanting to use the term Christian, because Christian can come, sometimes be a loaded term. But here's some things people call themselves. I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. I'm a disciple. If you're really hip and cool, you say I'm a postmodern missional pioneer. You know, you might have a different title for it, but you have some label to it. And people want to kind of put you in something, right? How many of you have ever just said this? I'm a follower. You know what a follower is? You immediately get this kind of thing put on you that you're weak. You can't think for yourself. You're a loser. I want you to do a little homework assignment. Go to cbd.com, Christian Book Distributors. I want you to just try to find books on followership. And then I want you to find books on leadership. Where's the scale go? I mean, I mean, leaders. I don't even know what it is. It'd be interesting. A hundred to one, probably, easily. I think that's safe. I don't know many books on followership. Interesting, isn't it? Matthew 28. Here it is. We're told by Jesus. Last words, basically, make disciples. Part one of the command. We know about that. Second part of the command is this: teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's what this series is about. Maybe it's that other 40% that we skip over in our Bibles. It seems like a hard saying, so we read past it pretty quickly. But we're taught to, we're told, we're instructed to be about as a mission as a church, to teach these new converts, these new disciples, all that I've commanded you, not just the fun parts. I start with this authority thing because at the start of the Great Commission, here's what he says. All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. That's Jesus talking. And then he says, now, go and make disciples and teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. So as we move forward in this series, and as you hear something you don't like or challenges an assumption you had before or whatever else, know that the authority question has to be in place. You have to get that one lined up. We're not going to spend any time on this, but the second authority place is the Bible. And, um, and there's, there's series and books and podcasts and tons of great stuff that you can go and say, why should I, why should I rely on the Bible as an authority? But that's a huge one to settle as we move forward in this. We'll talk some about it, but we just spent about a year and a half going through the book of John. You know what that was in part? It was to show you the reliable witness of a disciple and the authority that it spoke in our lives as, as we went through it and the reliability of it. As we read through this and look at it, we're going to look at Old Testament and New Testament writers that are going to instruct us on this demanding life. We're going to see characters in the Old Testament and New Testament that live this stuff out, many of whom were martyred 
some of whom sold their birthright for a meal. What is revealed over and over and over again is that God appeals to the idea of this, that there's suffering now, but there's great gain later. I want you to go without now so that in eternity you'll have rich bounty. You'll never lack. And so that leads us to kind of the final thing, and that is reward. Proverbs 13, 13 says this, He who scorns instruction will pay for it. Parents learn this one. This is a good one. But he who respects a command is rewarded. Some of you are scorning instruction potentially right now in your hearts and minds. Some of you are saying, man, I want to heed all that Jesus commanded. And I want to journey with Dave and others who will be up in front leading this. And as we go through it as a community group, and I want to dive deeper into this. I want to flesh out what it means with our, with our play button, worship, community, and share. Now what? We've got that down. What's the next level to that? I want to discover that. I want to move in that. I want to walk in that. What makes it all worth it? Well, there's certainly some now to it. If the Christian life today is drudgery, dull, burdensome, and frustrating most of the time, here's what I would venture to say. I would venture to say that you're involved in a project and not in a person. I would venture to say that you are are committed to a system of belief and not to a Savior. Kind of this, this way of thinking. Rules but not a relationship. Think about this. Are there bonuses to being married that are outside of relationship? Yeah, there are. You get to wear some cool bling on your left hand. That's pretty fun. Uh, you always have someone to take to Christmas parties, tax breaks. I mean, there's some cool like side benefits, right? But if you get married for those things, you're just sorely disappointed. And you go, man, why do people talk so highly of, of, of marriage? The rich reward is in the relationship. Now, the great difficulty is in the relationship. So it's kind of a, two, a two-edged coin. But the reward, there's some reward right now in our walk with Christ. And that's the relationship with Him. If you don't have that relationship, if you don't know what it means to pray without ceasing, inviting Him into places in your life, begin to grow in that and learn in that. That's part of the benefit right now. But the Bible continually points us to future reward, future gain, better investment. And there's this later element. There's this undistracted orientation that people have towards their own well-being and their own happiness. And you know what God does? He doesn't say, kill that, don't ever go with that. He goes right in line with that. And he says, I want you to seek your greater joy. C.S. Lewis has some amazing word pictures that, to me, remind me of Esau. Just pointing back to settling for, like, trinkets, silly little toys, when huge bounty is available to us. Some great parables Jesus taught on that as well. As we prepare for the journey, I want you to be hit with this, and I'd invite the band to come on back up. John 14, 15, these are the words of Jesus. If you love me, you will obey what I command. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Jesus equates your love for God with your obedience to God. To grow in our love is to observe all that he's commanded, even if it sounds ominous. And a part of the call of Jesus, no question, sounds ominous. Sounds really scary and hard. We're going to get into that some more. I want to close with a passage that illustrates this really well. Romans chapter 8. 
Starting in verse 15, it says this, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Just by show of hands, how many of you have heard that, that passage of Scripture before? I would venture to say this. I hear that quoted quite a, quite a bit. We have the Spirit that we get to cry, Abba, Father. You know what I don't hear quite as much? That all sounds pretty promising. I like that. Here's the part I don't hear tacked on quite as much. Pick up again from verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. I hope that scares you a little bit. That means you're awake. That means you're paying attention. That means you take this thing seriously. I hope what that does is it, call, it has you call out to that grace that enabled you to believe in the first place to, to say, that same grace better carry me on in this. Because if this, is, if this is up to me personally, I'm in a world of hurt. Next week, we're going to just look at the very starting point of this. And I don't care if you've been a Christian a really long time or if you've never touched on this. I think this message is for you. The very first demand, the starting point is this. You must be born again. We're going to look at that. Jesus said that. Doesn't you must sound pretty serious, like top-notch, high priority? Sounds like a good starting point for it. We better figure that one out. The demanding life starts with you must be born again. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you that you have saved us by your grace through faith. And I think I speak and celebrate with the people here in this room that we're well aware that it's not on our own work, on our own ability. God, would you keep our thinking straight? Would you transform what we know and think about you so that it comes in line with your will? Even the parts that sound really scary and life-threatening. I pray, God, you would give us a vision of heaven. Like a five-year-old, but also not like a five-year-old God. That we could grow in understanding what it is you want from us in 2010 and beyond. God, I pray for people in this room who are questioning why things happen the way they have in the last several months. I pray, God, that your voice would ring clear and true to those who are praying hard right now about a direction in life, about a relationship, about a conversation they're scared about. That, God, we could take these huge topics and that you would just come and invade our everyday life with it. And that we'd begin to see you showing up in ways that strengthen and encourage our faith as we walk the road. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.